specializing in custom-built staircases and also fine finish carpentry on yachts, trolleys, etc. since 1998. In Trenton at 479-4269 or brparley at gmail.com. WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org, where we're like the main weather. If you don't like it, just wait five minutes. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Front Street Shipyard, a Midcoast, Maine boat building, repair, and storage facility located in Belfast. Front Street Shipyard on Penobscot Bay, offering dockage, service, and amenities for owners, captains, and crew online at frontstreetshipyard.com or 930-3740. Support for WERU also comes from Bruce Parley Incorporated, specializing in custom-built staircases and also fine-finished carpentry on yachts, trolleys, etc. since 1998, in Trenton at 479-4269 or brparley at gmail.com. It's 10 o'clock, and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor, and streaming online at WERU.org. Boat Talk with your hosts Alan Sprague and Mike Joyce is up next. Good morning, good morning. Second Tuesday of the month, 10 o'clock here at Community Radio, WERU-FM, Blue Hill, 89.9, 99.9 in Bangor. Time for Boat Talk here on WERU. Boat Talk is a call-in show for people contemplating things naval with your Rusty Anchors, Mike Joyce, and Alan Sprague, and today we are gladly joined by John Johansson, again, editor and uh, proprietor of the Maine Coastal News, and Joe Mosier, proprietor of Nautical Scribe down in Stockton Springs, a a marine-centered bookstore and more. Um, We're going to be getting to Joe in just a little bit, but I thought we'd start off with... uh, Joe, uh, John today talking about uh, Galen Alley, starting off a little bit of bad news. Yeah, Galen was uh, killed in an automobile accident on the 16th of January in a rollover uh, on his way home from Rockland after Dragon. And he made quite a splash in lobster boat racing starting in 2005. Fastest boat, I believe. Yes. We have him clocked at 72.8. Although on a GPS, he was closer to 80. 80 miles an hour <laughs> over the water. That must be really scary. <laughs> now, there were some people that didn't want to go with him. I, I, I hate to ask which sheep island, but which alleys are we talking about? What's, what's the boat? The boat was Foolish Pleasure. Right. He started with uh, uh, the Lorna R., which is named after his mother, which was a wooden boat his father owned, and he dragged it back to Beals Island and totally fixed it. Then he launched it, was told not to take it out that day, but did, and in the process blew a plank, which created a submarine, threw one of the guys on the stern into the drink. Uh, they salvaged the boat, and in two weeks and two days, they totally rebuilt that boat from the bulkhead back. Did it sink? 
Oh, yeah. yeah. Insane. Yeah. But boys knew how to do some work. Well, yeah. the, Calvin Beal Jr. was the one that said, yeah, you can fix it. And everybody helped to yeah. get it back on the water. And then she came to Booth Bay, and that would have been 2006, I think, that she showed up at Booth Bay. So uh, Galen Alley is a uh, Beals Island fellow? Yep. Yeah. 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 He had Great Wasp Lobster, and that was his business. And But he also did some dragging, scallops, that sort of thing. I think he was dragging the day he died uh, that day. The boat was down in Rockland. Yeah, I think it was called Plum Crazy. It's it was a purple boat. Yeah, <laughs> that is crazy. <laughs> Don't but see he a had lot a, of... an affinity for speed, no doubt. All he he did, and a lot of them down in Jonesboro, because they brought up that way. Yeah, you know they've been going since. They well, got a long way to go to get out there. Well, yeah, but the, you know the races started back there early in the 1900s. Uh, Willis can tell you stories about 1901 and the Friendship Sloop races, but it was Bert Frost that actually started them. In 64 and you know kind of really got them organized again and hmm. they've been going ever since they've been going and growing oh yeah. yeah of course everybody's having a race when you come up behind somebody oh, and yeah. tend to be overtaking them that is a race and uh, you know and so it goes uh, boys got to formalize that and turn it into a party it's well Galen was one that took alcohol out of the helmsman and put it in the engine <laughs> good idea good idea <laughs> so he took an engine that was probably had a thousand horse maybe 1200 horsepower and boosted it to over 2000 mm. boy <laughs> Lucky well it didn't blow up let's well, use it did uh, blow up a few times let's use Galen <laughs> as a, an example let's zoom out on the coast of Maine you get a uh, you get around more than uh, we do by a long shot John um, he was fishing uh, out of Rockland uh, Dragon offshore. Yeah, I don't know what he was dragging for, whether he was dragging for scallops. He was a known scallop dragger, so yeah, yeah he probably, probably that's what he was probably doing. Well, let's zoom out uh, on the coast of Maine right now. There's a lobster fishery going on right now, and, and I'm not sure what the price is, but the uh, lobster landings in the, in the state of Maine have actually peaked and are, are falling down. The value of the fishery has stayed fairly high, but partly because of the winter landings which are, um, they get more money than they do in the summertime. But, right. of course, it costs a lot more to go, and it's more dangerous. And Well, there's a big argument right now because of the cost, the overhead of the lobster boat. I mean, you know, do you go out on a limb and buy a million-dollar lobster boat, and you got a problem now with bait? You're going to probably have a problem in the future with fuel. You know, how much is the fuel? I mean, right now it's bouncing around, what, $2.50, $3 a gallon for diesel? And but your bait's your biggest problem, I mean, because they cut the heron landings. We've also talked about the problem of lobsters in general. The uh, lobster uh, population is moving north and east uh, a couple miles a year. It's off of Stonington now. It's going to Canada. Yeah, you know, we used to be down off of uh, Long Island years back, but it ain't anymore. No, so it'd be interesting to actually get a scientist that could tell you the truth. But we'll yeah. figure that out. <laughs> oh well, uh, again, we we tried to. Uh, build on the climate change narrative and joe here has uh, got different ideas we were talking earlier so uh and, and again and everybody probably in the, Ed, you and i are probably in the same boat everybody is is uh that's here in, in any capacity willing to uh, comment uh, welcome to comment in any capacity too um so uh, um there are some uh, like say there is a lobster fishery right now but but not literally not everybody goes out in the winter time because you can't no, there's no, well, you got to be an offshore fisherman, yeah. and so you have to have a federal permit. And as we discussed before, they're not fishing the same ground they do in the summertime. No. They're going maybe no. 20, 30 miles out 
front of Isle of Ho, which is that's big open open water there. Right. Yeah. yeah. And your overhead just for getting out there and back. Right. Is hundreds and hundreds of dollars. And usually it's worth it because the price is up maybe, you know, between five and seven, eight dollars a pound. Yeah. What do you hear about the lobster tariff? Not much. No? I no. haven't either. You know no. why? Why? Because it all went to Canada and ship it from there. All right. <laughs> so, yep. No problem. <laughs> That's what they're doing with uh, the the LNG now, too. They're shipping it to Malaysia, offloading it onto another boat, and then sending it to China. Well, they have all the money, so they know best, I suppose. And, uh, you know... Uh, uh, speaking of the climate change uh, ongoing narrative here, here's an article from the Bangor Daily News last month that says rising seas swallowed $70 million in Maine home values. And uh, edited pretty heavily here, it says that uh, flooding caused by rising sea levels threatened property values in Maine and New England with uh, $70 million lost in Maine and over $400 million lost across the region. A uh, increased... Tidal flooding leads to loss in home value. Um, as sea levels rise, uh, accelerates, we expect corresponding loss in relative home value to accelerate as well. And since sea level rise is exponential, our numbers are conservative, they say. Losses will increase over time. They give an example of a house in Bath, Maine, on East Grand Avenue. Oh, I'm sorry, this one's in Scarborough. It uh, valued at 248 thousand dollars and is now only worth uh, 117 because it keeps getting wet inside you know from the tide and uh, the insurance becomes prohibitive on that and uh, what do you do with that property it says here that um, also um, consider when it's uh, cheaper to act or wait for instance the uh, national flood insurance uh, system is looking at buying low- and mid-level uh, homes and disappearing them instead of having them rebuilt again, forecasting, say, billions of dollars by not building, by not repairing this house time after time. Well, how many of them on the coast shouldn't have been built where they were anyways? Uh, well, the uh, fact is that on a nice Save day, on a nice day, somebody's going to be there, you know. So, uh, Same thing occurred back in the 1990s on the in the Mississippi Valley where they, uh, you had so much flooding that they finally just went ahead and and uh, moved towns out of, take, took them out of existence so that they were no right. longer there. I mean, it, it, there's a point at which uh, <clears throat> two things happen with, with flood insurance. One is the increase in the value of the properties to start with, and the other is the uh, reluctance to say to people, no, oh, you can't build there. Down in Miami, they're looking at a six-foot... Um, Above the tide thing, which would be critical for insurance, uh, great parts of Miami are only four to five feet above the tide. Be critical for the whole state. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's built on porous limestone, which the water will come up through as well as go back down into. And, uh, you know, the question is, uh, what's Miami Beach going to look like at the end of the century? There'll probably still some, be somebody there, but hardly anybody can predict that there'll be a city there. Well, you know? it- fact of the matter is that the uh, the single wealthiest zip code in America is in Miami Beach, and it's on an island that was artificially built. So that's uh, probably what you're going to look you're at. You're exactly right. <laughs> and again, we're talking big money, and uh, you can deny uh, science all you want, but as soon as people start getting into your pocketbook, uh, people really do start to sit up and pay attention. They're always in our pocketbook. Well, 
And also, there's a lot of uh, effort to say, oh, you're denying science. Well, now, maybe we're just objecting to the politics of some scientists. Oh, it's politics great, too. They come out with the National Climate Assessment, and, of course, the uh, uh, radical right wing says that the scientists are in it for the money, that uh, uh, they've been making this threat forever, and we're still here. It's only coming up two inches. Who can't uh, get out of the way at two inches in 100 years? Uh, but, uh, in fact, that's uh, not really how it works. We just noticed uh, the other week the uh, national intelligence chiefs went up before Congress and gave a national uh, intelligence threat briefing. They mentioned climate change, but not caravans, you know, and then had to uh, have a meeting with the great leader the next day and uh, pat him on the back and tell him how great he was to, you know, not confuse anybody. So, again, politics. Uh, beware, we is the enemy, but as the, uh, I'm sorry, I can't think of the author's name. There's a great uh, book out last year. I read The Water Will Come. It's the name of the book, you know. But if everything melts, how high will it go? I ain't got a clue. Two inches. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that's not the problem. The, uh, For instance, Miami floods on nice days now on the tide. That's all right. Well, not unless it's a stormy <laughs> day, too, you know. But the other thing is, is what about the uh, the plates, the Teutonic plates, and how they're rising too? Uh, yeah, that, because they don't have pressure on them from the glaciers. Well, that's also related to the North Pole shipping. It's, it's right. shifting. It's all sitting on molten iron. That's going to it moves. Continue moving around. Everything's right. going to change. You and know, it's funny that I was reading an old newspaper. I think we we're in 1838 or so, and they were complaining that it was getting too warm as compared to the early 1700s. So how long has this been going on? Yeah. And how long will it go? Well, um, let's well, go. And, uh, and an excellent point, too. Uh, let's not ever think there's just one thing going on. There is always a matrix of causes. Everything changes. That is, uh, bigger than anything you can probably get your tiny mind around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, on a good day. <laughs> so we have my friend Michael Good on the phone. Michael Good uh, works out of Bar Harbor on the the whale watches in the summer, but he's also a, I'm going to say he's a first-class birder. The bird brain. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Just call, uh, call people fish heads. He's, he's probably bird heard brain. that before, you too. Know? But I have heard that before. <laughs> yes. Good morning, Michael. Welcome to Boat Talk. Good morning, Alan. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah. Um, you have, or, or, or actually have been conducting something that uh, most people would uh shudder to even think about but uh, uh why don't you go ahead and talk about your winter bird count well i i uh back in uh, about 2012 i started talking with national audubon about um doing a pelagic bird count an open ocean bird count and uh my neighbor chris candich who some of you guys know um was willing to let me come out on the boat with him and count birds while they lobstered. So um, what I quickly found out is that um, when you're on the land most of the time and you, uh, you go out on the ocean, um, you sometimes get seasick. And certain years I would have more problems uh, than other years. But uh, the whole reason for going out there was counting birds. So I would uh, not think about it till I got out there. I'd try to see... Um, how I would do when I was on the boat, and this year I had a pretty rough time, but in years past I I, uh, I did pretty well. Uh, this was the worst year that I had, but um, anyway, my role out there is to count birds and uh, compile.
Cloudbird data to um, have some baseline data so we can talk about the climate change that you were just talking about. You know, what's the difference, uh, you know, what's the difference over the years? So I've been trying to, well, I've been working with Chris, and um, we've been out there, you know, counting seabirds. So it's, uh, it's a unique experience. Uh, we're, we're, um, uh, Chris does have a federal permit, so he's 20 to 35 miles offshore. And uh, a very different bird life out there than compared to the, you know, to the coastal uh, birds that we typically see. Um, so, so that's been my role. I've been able to work out on the ocean with Chris uh, for that one day. And uh, typically we get somewhere around 13 to 15 species. Um, we've done trips uh, in 2013 was the first trip that I did. Uh, we had uh, 1,300 uh, individual birds and 18 species. We missed 2014. Uh, we were able to get 2015 off with 126 indiv individual birds and 11 species. Uh, and then we skipped 2016 because of weather. Uh, 2017, we were back out there. Uh, 2018, we missed uh, that window of time because of 20-foot seas. And then this past year, we got out. We had 163 individual birds with uh, 13, 13 species counted. So uh, that gives you guys an idea of uh, some of the some of the birds that are out there um, during the winter. Uh, most people don't think of birds being out on the ocean, but you know we have common eiders, dove keys, um, thick-billed murres, razorbills, puffins, um, several different species of gulls, and things like northern fulmers and northern gannets that live out there feeding on the fish, and uh, you know other things that are out there in the ocean. So um, it's been an interesting experience. Uh, almost every year is a little bit of seasickness for this land lover, though. That, that's a good good promotion right there, Michael. <laughs> uh, uh, so we've been out there, and I'm going to quickly try to describe what happens. You said they're 20-foot seas. That means your your boat is going up and down 20 feet vertically while you're looking out uh, at, at the waves, trying to pick out some birds that are they swim or fly uh, remarkably close to the water for the water going up and down as much as it does. I'm, they're amazing to watch. Yeah, well, those days that are 20-foot waves, I'm not out there, Alan. <laughs> you are obviously... And neither is Chris. Uh, Chris uh, typically takes me out when he knows it's going to be uh, one to two foot, maybe. I've been out maybe three foot uh, waves. Um, I usually, I don't think anybody would do very well at 20-foot seas. <laughs> uh, no. Michael, you're obviously a little above average tough to go out there and do that despite, um, you know, have you tried uh, remedies? Well, I'll tell you what, uh, I forget about it every year. So um, I try not to think about it. I go out on the boat. I'm usually okay as long as we're going forward. And uh, But as soon as we stop, I start having problems. And... I just work through it. Um, I don't know. It's just something I think if you spend any time on the water, you kind of know that you might get seasick. Um, although I know Chris has never gotten seasick, uh, but he's out there all the time. So uh, I just kind of, 
you know, take whatever the day gives me and uh, just look forward to having an opportunity to be with the Seabirds. I love spending time with Chris and his crew. Um, what a hard, hard-working group of people out there on the water, I can tell you. Yeah. Uh, they, uh, they pull in a lot of lobsters, but they're, they're working hard all day long. Here's a story for you, Michael. We're uh, doing a uh, delivery, and I'm on a sailboat with uh, uh, another fellow's captain, and his son and I are the crew. Mm-hmm. Uh, his son is uh, not doing well and is sick and, uh, you know, uh, really not able to uh, stand his watch. Comes to me. He's been rummaging around downstairs. He finds some uh, acupressure bands in the nav station. All right. Comes up in the cockpit and says, uh, puts them on his wrist, says, you think these will help? And I smile down and says, don't think, you know, a little, little late, buddy. Um, he says, well, what can I do? I says, there's only really two things to do. He, oh, oh, well, yeah, what? Um, well, uh, the real cure is a nap under a tree. He <laughs> stared at me for a few minutes and then got a little upset. He says, yeah, and what's the other one? I says, well, uh, you know, a good fat joint would uh, probably cheer you up, too. And he pulled out his pack of Marlboros, and he pulled Marlboro out of the corner, and he says, this one's, this one's mostly pot. He says, you want to smoke it? I says, I do not. Wind that into you right now, though, which he did. Yeah, and, that... uh, about 10 minutes, he was asking for water and peanuts, <laughs> you know, and he yeah. was fine. You know, the greatest admiral in the world was always seasick, Floyd Nelson. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, always. Seasick. And he never, and he never got over it. And he, he never would, smoked a joint either. No, he would sit off Toulon for what two years during the during the war. And oh, he, and debilitative. Wow. But huh. um, uh, think of an edible, Michael. Nowadays, you know. Well, I'll think about next that next year. Yeah, I, I don't think the Coast Guard approves of this. Uh, you know, no, not on uh, a federal boat. Well, no. and again, we're talking right out loud on the radio, but I've seen miracles uh, a couple of times out there. So you know. Yeah, that's uh, right. If you can't find a tree, if you you know. Have you found a trend with the birds? Well, I'll tell you. Uh, um, one of the things that I have noticed is that early in the morning. So. You know, as far as seasickness, I'm usually pretty good. Once the sun comes up, I'm okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, this year, that didn't happen. For it was cloudy all day today. Uh, this year, so yeah. that, was, that was part. How about of it. with the birds? But with the birds, um, one thing I noticed right away is that so we're we're um, typically about we're we're south southwest of Mount Desert Rock, about I'd say about 15 miles. So out there. Usually, first thing in the morning through the early part of the morning, I will see alcids. I'll see puffins and razorbills and common murs and thick-billed murs early in the morning. Then they seem to disappear. Um, and uh, I'm not sure if they're traveling off. You know, perhaps they're overnighting in that area, and then they're traveling uh, through the area, through Chris's trawl lines, um, to get to food. So uh, typically in the afternoon, I don't really see that many alcids. Uh, occasionally, I do see a couple here and there, but for the most part, it's the morning when they seem to be the most active. And then um, there are always gulls out there. We always have uh, Iceland's gulls and um, you know some of these other uh, gull species, black, uh, um, great blackback gulls, herring gulls. Um, glaucus galls, they tend to be out there all the time following the trawl lines. So what I would really like to do in the future, I would love to find a boat where 
I can get more people on it than just me and that we'd be able to do better transects through that uh, Jordan Basin area because that's where we that's where this uh, this Jordan Basin Christmas bird count was established so uh, you know there uh, you know the birds typically seem to be the same group of birds that are out there so anywhere from Oh, I don't know, 13 to 16 species, I, I think, is what I typically have when I'm out there. Um, and what would be very interesting, I think, scientifically, <clears throat> is to have a boat where we have, you know, say, five to ten people on it, and we go out and we do transects that aren't trawl lines, but so we can move around a little bit more than the typical lobsterman does. Uh, typically, they're... The lobstermen are pretty much, of course, focused on their trawl lines. And, uh, you know, they don't really venture too far off, you know, away from those lines. Um, so, you know, as far as trends, as far as climate change trends, I don't really have any data at this point that would suggest that uh, there's anything significant going on there. Um, but... Uh, you know, it, it just always amazes me that there are birds out there on the ocean. And, you know, the lobstermen and those guys see those things all the time. They live with them every day. Um, they don't really think about necessarily what species they're looking at. You know, they just know that those birds are out there with them. So there's probably a significant amount of uh, security in seeing those birds out there. But, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I have any real trends um, you know, we know that puffins move offshore. Uh, all of the uh, nesting alcids, the razorbills and puffins, um, those guys seem to move offshore, and uh, they're focused on food. So where the food is, that's where we find the birds. And one of the reasons why all the galls are there is because of everything that's going back into the ocean, you know, from the lobster traps that... Uh, you know, that's left behind. So, uh, you know, overall, it's been an incredible experience for me. I love being out on the water. Uh, none of us like to be seasick, but that's just kind of part of the deal. Have you have you tried to find a grant that would underwrite something like that with a, to maybe charter a boat? Well, uh, we, we haven't made an attempt to do that. Um, chartering a boat would be the way to go. But as you know, there's a significant cost to getting out uh, 25 to 30 miles offshore. So uh, a grant is a possibility, um, and it's something that uh, I certainly have thought about, but uh, haven't taken the time to do yet. So We tag birds nowadays, uh, thinking of modern methods of uh, beyond, you know, uh, looking at things with your eyeballs, tracking things now. They're doing incredible stuff with uh animals with uh, uh, tracking tags and satellites. Any of that in your area? Yeah, that's right. Um, these, uh, that's given us the ability to know that some of our birds that nest out on Petit Manan Island go out to the end of the, the edge of the Gulf of Maine, and that seems to be there where they winter. Um, we also know that they go farther than that. But uh, absolutely, uh, radio tracking and New technology is going to give us a lot of insight 
into the life of a bird out on the open ocean, which, as you know, cannot be a very easy thing uh, to to uh, do, uh, living out there every day. Dealing with the storms that we have, uh, we, we were talking about 20-foot seas. Those are the things that stop us from going out there, but uh, certainly the birds are out there, and, you know, um, it would be a lot. It would be very interesting to know what's going on, the details of each day of these birds. And we're starting to get some insight into that. Um, my Christmas bird counts out there, I think there are only three Christmas bird counts, uh, one down in Stillwagon uh, Basin, and I'm not sure where the other one is, down along the East Coast. So, you know, these bird counts, these Christmas bird counts that I've been doing are pretty unique. Um, not too many people want to go, you know, that far offshore for the day. But uh, you're right, a grant or um, working with uh, other organizations. Um, you know, now we have Scudic uh, Institute. Um, that might be something we could talk about doing in, in the future. Um, you know, most of those lobstermen are out there making money. They don't really care too much about what birds they're seeing. So that's a, a little different focus, uh, you know. And fascinating not to know that they're just there and going uh – you know, here and there, but uh, when you track them, you find out they go some surprising places, uh, you know. And, oh, my gosh, and you yes. wonder we, why. Uh, you know, lately they've been getting lightweight trackers that allow us to put things like peregrine falcons we know are out over the ocean uh, during fall migration. They're out there for days, uh, traveling hundreds of miles. Where the hell they um, sleep? We, we know that uh, other birds uh, will travel from Nova Scotia, for example, over to Maine and then go back to Nova Scotia. So um, these are, uh, you know, some of the new technologies that are allowing us to better understand uh, life of birds out on the ocean and also on, on the land as well. I'm fascinated uh, with the idea that crows all get together and sleep in a secret space for the night. And, uh, you know, what about the sleeping ocean birds? Well, uh, most of those guys are, are on the water. Um, if you think about uh, albatrosses, they probably never touch the water. They're actually sleeping and flying at the same time. So it's thought that half their brain is asleep, the other half is consciously, you know, uh, aware of what's objects. going on. So you're talking about how I feel sometimes, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, <laughs> we could talk about uh, you know some of the remedies for that. Um, <laughs> Like I said, try an edible. So you know, good luck. <laughs> That's right. Oh, uh, Michael, good talking to you this morning. Yeah, Michael. So if people are, you've piqued their interest now. Uh, how would they uh, follow up on this? Well, uh, you certainly could give me a call um, right here at Down East Nature Tours in Bar Harbor. Um, uh, emails work fine. You know, info at downeastnaturetours dot com. Um, we're always looking for ways to try to figure out how to get on the water. Maybe there's a, a boat owner out there that uh, has nothing going on that time of year, and they'd be interested in, uh, you know, giving us uh, an opportunity to get out on the water. Um, Christmas bird counts go from December 14th to January 5th. Um, that's a statistically uh, important uh, piece of time that all the Christmas bird counts happen. So that's when I try to get the Jordan Basin Christmas bird count in. 
um, sometime. I, I like to get out the first part of the year because it gives me a bunch of interesting birds for the first, you know, my first birds of the year turn out being uh, northern fulmers and puffins and razorbills. But uh, we do have that chunk of time before January that is important to get out. So, yeah, anybody that's interested in uh, trying to get out on the Christmas bird count and uh, working with me out on, on, a, on a boat, um, I'm always open uh, for new ways to get out there. So, but uh, thank you very much for letting me come on today and talk about it, uh, Alan. I really appreciate you getting in touch with me. Well, thank you, Michael. It's been inter- interesting. And uh, so. good, <laughs> as we said here, good luck with your winter count. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Uh, I don't have to do it again until next year, so uh, I can think about the, uh, the seasick uh, side of that or try not to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you also do uh, bird uh, bird observations. I'll call it uh, during the summer on the whale watch tours too. Is that right? We do. Uh, you know, I worked on the whale watch boats um, back in the nineties. Um, uh, I go out now uh, occasionally. Um, there are uh, other opportunities. You know, we have the Acadia Birding Festival. Um, that's uh, June. Uh, the very beginning of June, May 31st to June 2nd this year. And on that Saturday, we do a a pelagic bird count. Um, We head off towards uh, Petit Banan Island, where a lot of the people from away are trying to get puffins and razorbills and murres. Um, But then we head offshore. And, you know, last year was an amazing year because we had a brown booby. And brown boobies are a Caribbean, uh, a middle world I think he was, too. the fact that this brown booby was up here in the Gulf of Maine. So, you know, that's why we do it. You know, this this year I didn't have any really exceptional birds on the uh, Christmas or on my Christmas bird count. But you never know when something like that's going to happen, where you pick up a migratory bird that is out of range. And, um, you know, there were 163 people on our spring uh, pelagic trip. And every single one of them were totally excited about that brown booby because none of us, I, nobody on that boat had had a brown booby here in the, the uh, Gulf of Maine. So, you know, so those are the reasons, that's the driving scientific reason, reason for doing a lot of these bird counts out on the ocean because it's a very difficult place to get to. And it's a very complicated place. Uh, you know, I told you there were some years where we couldn't get out because of the weather. But uh, when we are out there, it is always totally interesting because we just don't have that much time, uh, you know, out on the water. It's uh, it's a difficult place to be, difficult place to study. You know, so Chris Candich uh, gives me an opportunity to be out there every year. And, uh, you know, we try to find as many ways as we can to uh, count birds out on the open ocean. So the website is downeastnaturetours.com, Michael? Well, that's, yep, that's my website. Uh, the Acadia Birding Festival website is, uh, is just that. Uh, this year, the Acadia Birding Festival um, starts on May 31st. We have some pre-trips. Uh, one goes to Saddleback Mountain. I take people up to the top of the mountain to show them uh, Big Nell's Thrush. It's a specific species that nests at the top of our mountains. 
And uh, we'll also be working with uh, the uh, Katahdin Woods and Water National Monument this year. We're very excited about that. Uh, it's an opportunity to showcase uh, the National Monument and uh, give us an opportunity to help uh, put them on the map as a place to go birding or a place to just enjoy Maine and, you know, enjoy the experience of Maine. So, uh, yeah, AcadiaBirdingFestival.com. Hey, Michael, good. Celebrate being a bird brain. We'll be talking to you again uh, soon, hopefully. Well, I look forward to it, guys, and yep. uh, I'll be listening to uh, Bo Talk. I, I love your show, and you guys do a great job. So thank you very much again for the opportunity. Thank you, Michael Good, Down East Nature Tours. Yeah, and we are doing boat talk this morning, contemplating all kinds of naval issues, and we're going to get to boat books. Uh, we should, yes. Next, we're yeah. Delinquent as usual. Yeah. <laughs> Time oh, it, it goes. It goes fast. We don't over organize boat talk. We yeah. just kind of, you know, uh, throw it up and see what happens. But we have Joe Mosier in, and Joe. Uh, driving up and down Route 1 in Stockton Springs there, turned my head, there's a new store. It's called Nautical Scribe Bookstore. That's right. We were in Belfast for five years, I guess. Uh, then with the success of Belfast, they kind of said, well, we don't need you here anymore. And we decided to buy our own place so we could live above the store and keep it open on better hours. So we bought what used to be the old Good Kettle restaurant. Yeah, it said Maine Good Food on the building there. It did yeah. indeed. It's going to say good books, good coffee next time you go by. Yeah. But we, uh, we opened up uh, in early August this year, got the coffee bar uh, licensed and everything in October. So we've been essentially open since about the 1st of October. Nice. I've enjoyed uh, stopping in a couple of times and, and uh, picked up a couple of interesting books. Uh, what, uh, I assume you're a reader. How did you get to be a bookseller? Well, we moved up here. Both my wife and I are retired Navy, and we uh, were working for museums after we retired from the Navy, and I was a book collector. And when we decided to move up to Maine after one, after I think our fifth hurricane in four years down in Virginia, uh, we brought a lot of books up, and we got rid of a bunch, but we had a couple thousand that I didn't, I, you know, you move to a smaller place, you, you still Just have the books, but you, you don't have yeah. the shelves. So. Eight uh, column, but yeah. Uh, my wife said, what are you going to do with these? And from that came the idea of the store. Nice. Now let's go back to Navy. You're going to have to be a little bit more specific about being in the Navy. Well, I was specifically in the Navy for about, uh, well, I was in the Navy for 18 years. I was in the Army for three years back during the Vietnam War. But uh, when I got out uh, of the Army, I went to college, uh, decided that if I was going back in a service, I wouldn't go back in the Army. At least the Navy would give me some place to sleep and something to eat on a regular basis. So I did uh, 18 years, uh, specialized in anti-submarine warfare, did uh, three carrier tours, uh, was on a destroyer, uh, on a, uh, they called them fast frigates, although they were, I think the max speed was about 27 knots downhill. Mm -hmm. uh, and met my wife while we were there. She did uh, 26 years. Uh, she retired as the direct, as deputy director of the Navy's undersea surveillance program. That's a little big. Yeah, well, <laughs> it, was, it, was a, uh, it was a fun time. I retired before she did, spent eight years as the, uh, you know, the, the CO's wife, giving uh, parties and joining the officer's wife club. Uh, and then we both retired, she in 98, I in 91. 
and as I said, after that, went to work for, uh, I went to work for the Chrysler Museum doing archival work, and she worked for the Hampton Roads Naval Museum uh, managing the battleship Wisconsin, which was in display status. Now, your wife, Mary, um, I approached you about uh, uh, showing up on the program today and mentioned that, uh, you know, we're up against your business hours, and uh, Mary uh, commented that it was too good of an opportunity to pass up, and I uh, commented back now, isn't she smart? Which is obviously well, got to be true, isn't it? I'm going to say it can't be that smart. She married me 41 years ago. <laughs> well. But aside from that point, yeah, she's, she's a, an intelligent woman with uh, degrees in chemistry and advanced mathematics. So That's got to help when you're running a little business yeah, on the coast of Maine. I'll let her do the taxes. Yeah. She's yeah. also uh, one of the trustees of the Penobscot Marine Museum. Yeah. Oh, nice. All connected, yeah. And yep. he worked at the Decatur Museum. Yeah, that was my first... Uh, First job out of the Navy was yeah. was working for the Decatur House Museum in D.C. Which is about? Well, it was the home built by Stephen Decatur, Commodore Stephen Decatur, in the early, well, the late 18-teens. He was a big war of 1812 uh, hero and the Barbary yeah. Wars He comes up that. in high school history books. Yeah, you see him. And, and actually, there's I counted them up. There's 28 cities or towns in America. I was going to say Decatur, Illinois, so it flashed Decatur, to me. Decatur, Georgia. <laughs> Good point, yeah. yeah. Good point. But, huh? his, but his house is still around. Uh, and while I was working there, I got involved with naval history because a guy who was doing the biography of Decatur asked me to do some research for him at the Library of Congress and the Naval Historic Center. So that, that really started my interest in naval history. And I became a writer on naval history as well later for uh, the Hampton Roads Naval, naval Museum. Now, the great thing about uh, uh, books is we'll never run out of uh, good books, you know. There's always another one. And uh, mm -hmm. nautical books, I guess, uh, is sort of like boat talk. We allow that the surface of the world is about three-quarters water, and uh, it's connected to everything else. So we'll stretch the boundaries of, of what's... Uh, for instance, the Maine Hermit we talked about on Boat Talk. He lived next to a pond, borrowed a canoe one time. Close enough, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so uh, uh, it doesn't really limit anything. Um, the uh, idea of reading a good boat book as opposed to going out there and getting seasick really appeals to a lot of people, obviously. Well, I can remember myself. Uh, I was in Iceland back in the 70s and uh, sitting there during a... A gale reading heavy weather sailing was a real treat. <laughs> heavy weather sailing in that gale would not have been a treat. Yep. Um, when we go into the Nautical Scribe bookstore, and again, Route 1, um, Stockton Springs, right where uh, 1A tends off right. up towards Bangor there, right. uh, pretty much. Uh, just after the bifurcation. Yep, that area right there. Um, what do we find when we walk in? Uh, we have new and used books, don't we? A limited number of new. We're mostly a used bookstore. We're not an antiquarian store. We're a used bookstore. Most of our books are priced below 10 bucks. although we have some valuable old stuff. But uh, I don't bring in the latest titles. I find that to be, you know, your margin goes down considerably if you're dealing with new books, even if you're under a situation where you can return your remainders. It's, it's cheaper from a business viewpoint to carry used books. And as you say... There are enough books out there that you can spend your life reading used books without having to buy the new ones. I always say if you want a new book, go to a library. Oh, um, a lot of wisdom right there. Um, I don't like going into bookstores as a general rule because I can't just grab and take what I want. And I certainly can't afford to buy all the books that I'd like to read. Uh, 
But I, uh, as you said, uh, prices under ten bucks. Uh, I was fairly impressed. Uh, we can't talk prices here, but uh, for instance, I got this book uh, here at your shop. is uh, just a delight. Handling troubles afloat. What to do when it all goes wrong? John Meller is an English fella. Tell tell us about the picture. It's right on the front. That's a good start. Oh, right? the uh, fellow's uh, sailing his. Uh, he's reefing. Uh, he's trying to reef his <laughs> sail, and the. Uh, he's reefing his mast. Mast is broken at the uh, at the spreaders, and uh, you know it's all going sideways for him there, uh, mid twenty foot boat here. But mm. this book is what would you do if your engine failed in strong winds close to Rocky Lee shore? The rigging failed while you were beating out of a confined anchorage. Here's one of my favorites. Uh, uh, what if you were caught in a gale with a panicky, frightened crew? Um, you know, and this fellow is English, and they Robola. take they take the uh, bend there. <laughs> and, uh, Tie a rope around their ankle, use them as a, as a Oh, man. Drogue. Yeah, drogue. <laughs> and again, the uh, wisdom of getting older, you see a couple of things. You see stuff a couple of times, and you start to recognize what's going on, you know. And um, there are people that... Uh, Everybody seems to want to go out there, but there's a lot of people who just don't belong out there. And in the middle of the night, uh, I've seen a couple of freakouts. Mm-hmm. They're not supposed to be here. They don't understand what's going on. They don't know what to do next, and they're not wrong to be freaked out. And they turn on the people around them is, is what happens. So, um, like I say, been there, seen that, and now I recognize it. So. Yeah, we have another book that we just put. We do an advertisement of a book a week, and uh, we had one called Cruising for Cowards, which is pretty much the same thing. You can, you can cruise safely, uh, but as you say, the more experience you have, you realize how really not death-defying a lot of this stuff is. It's a matter of simply dealing with the problem as it arises. And... Uh, one of the great things we like to say on Boat Talk, you can't fake experience. You have to learn from the mistakes of others. You haven't got enough time or lives to make all those mistakes yourself, right. chummy, okay? And, uh, you know, a good little book like this, Handling Troubles Afloat, is, like I say, it's just candy to me. Um, you know, we uh, benefit from the experience of other people. Do you, uh, now we're not just selling all your own books here anymore. You can't uh, exist off that puddle, I wouldn't think. Where do you, uh, where's your stock coming go from well you're right we started with 2,000 we're up at 6,000 I don't have that many that I brought in myself we we do uh, we have a lot of people bring books in people who are moving don't want to haul the books with them bring them by we have some people three or four people particularly who have excellent collections who are selling through consignment uh, some retired professors and the like uh, and I actively go seek out books as well from the sources that I can get. There's a few uh, vendors that I can find that sell books to me at a reasonable price. Alan, have we even mentioned the phone number yet this morning on this call-in program? We failed again. This is a call-in show, and anybody would like to contribute anyway, the number to call is 1-866-625-9378. And here's the question. What's uh, name a favorite boat book? Okay. um, I, I... I can't keep a list of favorites, but I'll tell you one that I just read recently that goes into the used book column very easily. It's called um, Hail Columbia. It's a book uh, written, I can't remember the name of the person who wrote it. I think it's Story, his last name is. Dana? Dana Story, I believe that's right. Um, It's a story, uh, uh, the (laughs) account of the uh, schooner 
Columbia, who was built in the days of uh, fast schooner sailors because uh, when you caught your load of fish, the first boat to make it back to uh, to market got the best prices. So they had fast schooners, and uh, Columbia was built in, uh, I believe, Massachusetts Essex. somewhere. Essex. Essex, yep. Won the America's Cup? Well, I put money on it. It was built by his father, Arthur Story. Arthur, okay, yep, right, you're right. So it was. He he described the, the, the construction of the book. And uh, unfortunately, when it was uh, first built, it had a defective rudder, so it was never able to make top speed until after it was hauled out a couple of years later. And uh, But it was, still was in uh, some interesting races with the Canadian fishing boat of the fleet at the time and uh, did did very well, but... Unfortunately, it was lost. I think four years after it was built in a, in a storm, off uh, all Sable hands, Island. Yeah, off Sable Island. Yeah, no, she was coming back with Heron, I think. Yep, and uh, no survivors. Just just a few pieces right. were found. I think it was twenty seven. Nineteen twenty seven. Yeah, because she wasn't that old. She was only like three or four years old. Yeah, it was four years and old. And somebody's redone that boat. They rebuilt and did one in steel. Guy down uh, in Florida. In fact, there's a duplicate hull sitting next to it. Same size? Same size, exactly the same boat. Wow. Hmm. Now, speaking of boat books, here's one that I would call mandatory, uh, Chapman. I don't even know Chapman's first name. Uh, Chapman is uh, piloting seamanship and small boat handling. It's the uh, kind of the boat Bible. You it always, is indeed. That, you must always have a Chapman. We've got several. It's one of those things where anybody who's got a fairly decent nautical library ends up with about four or five books that, that everybody else has. You know, you, you, you always will find a copy of Chapman. You usually find a copy of the American Practical Navigator. Uh, you'll certainly find uh, oh, what the, from the Smithsonian, the uh, boat designer. Oh, the Chappelle. Uh, Chappelle, yeah, Howard Chappelle. Uh, so when, when we get our library books, it's kind of when people bring this stuff in, we just kind of. We got we have stocks of those. They keep our house from falling down. <laughs> the new uh, uh, everybody again has to have a Chapman uh, boat without Chapman on it ain't quite right. And uh, there's a lot of information on there. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of information, probably the most expensive book I have ever bought, but probably the best uh, uh, bang for buck I've ever got. Uh, the boat owner's mechanical and electrical manual. How to maintain, repair, and improve your boat's essential systems, Nigel Calder, yeah, main boy. And uh, that, I take on deliveries with me. I feel naked if I don't have it. He's not me. a main boy anymore. No? He ran to Maryland. Ow. Yep. Uh, again, we uh, <laughs> are... I keep two Nigel Calders. There's a British Nigel Calder. Yeah, he was a scientist. Yeah. yeah. He wrote a wonderful book about the English Channel. Well, yeah, there was another Nigel Calder that, that did cos- uh, cosmology. Cosmology? Well, I think that's what it's called. You know, you're talking about the stuff. No, (laughs) when you're talking about the uh, yeah, the astronomy. Yeah, Yeah. he tells you exactly how everything works, uh, why it might have stopped working, and uh, things, uh, little tricks that he's used to get them going again. And that book is just invaluable. He was the guy behind, kind of behind the formation of main built boats. Yeah, because he sent uh, a white paper to one of the governors. Yeah. Nigel is exquisitely technical, and mm-hmm. uh, again, he uh, writes it great, and that book, mm-hmm. um, I, w- I just wouldn't be without it. They also did one on electrical systems that's just really useful. Yeah. yeah. He did some on engines, mm-hmm. diesels. Yeah. But that's the, the most expensive book you bought? 
You uh, didn't get into antiquarian, have you? No. <laughs> and again, I'm I'm. Uh, I've got a real nice book that only cost you nineteen hundred dollars, but we won't talk about what's that. It, what's, it, what's that one? That one. It's actually it's a set. It's a biography, Royal Naval biography set from the uh, written in the eighteen forties. Because I've got one by Campbell from seventeen fifty two, but the 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 admirals were able to write their own biographies. And so there's a problem. Oh, yeah, well, believability, but aside from that. Right. But my best one is I got Lord Byron's grandfather's book, John Byron, because he was wrecked on Wager Island. Ah, now that's a great tale. One of my all-time favorites is um, Abandoned Souls, Desperate Journeys. This is um, a uh, story. uh, It's a um, collection of castaway stories from Robinson Crusoe to uh, Steve Callahan's. Now, who, who's really Robinson Crusoe? Uh, again, uh, Robinson Crusoe usually dies, okay? But he's the, really was Alexander Selkirk. Yeah, so, yeah and it was, yeah. Uh, it wasn't, uh, when you read the book, it's off the Orinoco on the on the uh, east side Sun, of South right. America in reality. It was on the southwest well, side. Well, you had to change some of the stuff. To, so well, he, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> copyright problems. <laughs> well, no, they didn't have them because that's how Bowditch got around it. Because yeah. the Bowditch's book isn't really his; it's yeah. it was Murray's book, huh. and he yeah. just made seven thousand corrections in it and published it as his own. Yeah. There's a there's a uh, new biography of Bowditch called Nathaniel Bowditch: The Power of Numbers. Which yeah, looks that's at great. Him. Yeah, wonderful book. I've been a reader my whole life. I used to uh, mom and dad had to go through my bedroom to uh, get to the bathroom, and I was uh, always uh, reading, and then had a flashlight under the cover, and uh, you know. Uh-huh. And the Playboys under the mattress. Yeah, that's try and, story. tried to uh, write the great Maine historical novel when I was a teenager about uh, Weymouth coming here in 1605 and capturing a couple Indians, taking them back uh, to Europe and stuff. I, I didn't quite finish that, but, you know. You still got time. Oh, geez. <laughs> you know the book that I would love to see? Um, and uh, here's another favorite would be uh, Bernard Corn- Cornwell, uh, The Fort. Yeah, it is a good book. It's English novelist. Be- it's actually better than the uh, Penobscot ex- expedition, which is describes it in in better you, detail and more historically accurate. But Cornwell's a wonderful writer. Yeah. How about it's the one that Br- was it? Brule that did one uh, that from through Naval Institute. Buker, I think it is, isn't it? The uh, Penobscot expedition. Isn't yeah, Buker. It's the story of Castine and and the battle for right. Castine in 1779. Because uh, see, I knew John Cafford. Yeah. Because he worked up at the Miracle Center, and uh, I think he actually was going to rewrite that book. But when Brule's book came out, or whatever his name was, he realized that he had done all of the research that John could have ever done. Yeah, and, and the information's all in there, but it ain't a great read. No, uh, it's, it's hard a, read. Yeah, it's a bit of a you know you got to pay a lot of attention. Um, what a great story when. Um, you know, the uh, people in Massachusetts uh, saw that the British were fortifying Castine and sent a fleet down here with a basically state militia. It wasn't much, uh, it wasn't a George Washington operation. There was one uh, continental U.S. ship that they uh, blamed everything on. Uh, Commodore Dudley Saltonstall took the blame yeah. for everything. Well, you got to remember that Paul Revere was court martialed three times, for, but he outlived this everybody. Is, this yeah. is where Paul Revere was court martialed for um, uh, behavior tending to cowardice in the face of the em- enemy. <laughs> well, he outlived all of his accusers. So. Yeah, and he was hard to get along with fellow, but uh, Bernard Cornwell told that wonderfully in the novel uh, called The Fort. Uh, a couple of kids who are uh, growing up in Castine get tangled up on both sides and, you know, works really good. What I would love to see is a modern uh, narrative historian uh, David Hackett Fisher, uh, the people who do the uh, uh, 
this new one about the sinking of the Indianapolis that brought the atomic bomb uh, across the Pacific at the end of the war <laughs> and they got torpedoed. That Castine story, I'm thinking, is rich for mm -hmm. a, um, a good historical treatment by somebody who uh, can get all the details in there and make it readable. And it occurred to me in the shower this morning, there's the book I got, you know. But it ain't going to be me that writes it, so. The <laughs> problem, problem is always the availability of uh, uh, primary source documents for something like that. You know, they, it, when you deal with the Indianapolis, you've got all the survivors' reports as well as the multiple Navy reports. But when you deal with something that happened in, in the 1770s, you're really... You get thin after you get through the court martial. Yeah. Well, I got one yesterday. I got an email in, and they were wanted to know about the ship Lucy that went from Penobscot. This is 1786. She went up on Lovell Island in Boston, and only one survivor. And it it came to light because the guy had gone into a cemetery and found it on a gravestone. Found so then survivor. he found it in uh, a write-up that uh, I think it was called the Funeral Eulogy was the paper of 18, uh, 1786. So now we're trying to find the data, and like Joe says, good luck. You know, the only hope I've got is to find it in other papers' accounts. And I think Salem was running at the time, the Salem paper, the Salem Gazette, and I know the New Hampshire Gazette was running, so I can check them. Well, that's one of the benefits of being on Boat Talk, too. We're talking to several people at the same time. So we uh, phone just like rang finally this morning. Uh, do we have time for that? No. Uh, we're right in the corner we're, we're here. Against the wall. Didn't even get to mention uh, best boat book of all time. I think the Master and Commander series, Patrick O'Brien. It's 21 novels that are really one Talk about a hard and, uh, read. Ooh. Wow. No. It's like learning a new new language. All right, well, thanks to Amy down in the engine room, and stay tuned for... Uh, real. Are we still... Any contact information for you, Joe Mosier, for the yes. Nautical Scribe Bookstore? Yeah, you can, uh, you can reach us uh, via the, the interweb, as I like to call it. Uh, we have a webpage, nauticalscribebooks.com. We also have a Facebook page that I do a uh, daily... Uh, history for some maritime event uh, tied to that particular date. We do one of those every day. We barely scratched the book thing, man. Uh, thanks for coming this morning. Boat Talk out. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Gambell and Hunter Sailmakers, making sails for classic boats, cruising boats, and the main wind jammers for more than 30 years at 16 Lime Rock Street.